Hebrews chapter 8, where we reach a very important theological chapter in the book of Hebrews for all of us to understand. And it can be rather difficult, and it has shown itself to be hard to be understood to some who have rested this scripture to create a number of dispensations in the Bible where men are saved by different means. And this morning I hope to turn that upside down, stamp on it for a while, and leave it in the dust, and let us take great comfort and be fully assured that God has only had one method of salvation from the creation of this world to the end of this world, although under different administrations. And that's what we'll see in this eighth chapter of Hebrews. Let us read, first of all, the first five verses which provide the first section of this chapter. Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 5. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For, see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. Hebrews 8, 1 through 5, which gives us the first section of this chapter, which is a reminder, a summary of the priesthood of Jesus Christ and the introduction of a couple more points relative to that priesthood. And then the remainder of, remainder of that chapter will be the setting forth of the new covenant of which Christ is the great minister. Let us bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy written word that everyone here can hold and read, that we can use in freedom, that You've opened to us an understanding that is more sure than your voice from heaven, more convincing than any denominational system or any church fathers, able to make us wiser and give us more understanding and knowledge than our enemies, the ancients, or our teachers. Heavenly Father, by thy Spirit now, the Spirit of illumination, Open to us this eighth chapter of Hebrews and bless every one of thy saints here this morning to be gripped with the glory of the new covenant. For we ask it in the name of the great minister of the new covenant, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. To this point in the book of Hebrews, we have had emphasized the theme that Jesus Christ is our priest. And that is not a light theme. 
Every religion must have its priest, as I've tried to emphasize to you. God is an infinite distance from man. Job cried that there was no daysman that could put a hand with God and a hand with man and reconcile the two parties because they're at such odds. The book of Hebrews is to show the Hebrew Christians that they did not need the Levitical priesthood to be reconciled to God. In fact, the Levitical priesthood was inadequate for the job, but that Jesus Christ was more than adequate. He was the great high priest that has passed into the heavenly places. Now, in chapter 8, obviously, this is the first verse after chapter 7. That should be clear. Chapter 7 contained a number of arguments about what theme? The priesthood of Christ. Chapter 7 is the focal point of Christ's priesthood in the book of Hebrews. The whole chapter, remember, was broken into little groups of three to five verses with additional arguments for the fact that Christ's priesthood is superior to the priesthood of Aaron and all the high priests of Israel. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised when we come to the first verse of chapter 8 and we read this. Now, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. For those of you who remember your second grade math, what is the sum? It's the result obtained from an addition problem. Isn't that right? If you add two numbers together, you get the sum. Now, in 20th century language, how would we say that? Here's the bottom line, folks. Where's the sum found in a problem? At the bottom line. Paul's simply saying, here's the bottom line of what I've been trying to communicate to you. Especially after chapter 7, all the arguments he gave on the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He says, here's the bottom line. We have such an high priest. Now, the word such is a word that describes the character or the nature or the features of a thing. Such an high priest. What kind of a priest, Paul? Well, everything I've just laid out to you in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 7 that refer to the priesthood of Christ. We have such an high priest. Look at chapter 7 and verse 26. For such an high priest became us. What is a becoming priest? The priest described in Hebrews 7.26, a priest that is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. We have such an high priest. Not that we're hoping for one or that we're waiting for one. We have such an high priest, the priest that's been described. Now the apostle goes on to add a couple more characteristics to his priesthood. We have such an high priest. That's the bottom line of everything he has spoken. Characteristic now described with these words. Who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens? Point number one. This priest that we have, Paul wants to further remind us he is set at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. 
Now, have we seen that concept presented before? Go back to chapter 1. I want you to see it again because this is very important. A priest that deals on earth is not nearly the priest that stands at God, sits at God's right hand. You don't want a priest on earth. You want a priest in the heavenly places. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Speaking of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Almost the same wording. Jesus Christ purged our sins and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. For His offering had been obtained. He could sit down. His work of obtaining a sacrifice was finished. He said that on the cross. His work of intercession was beginning when he sat down. He then pleads the blood of Christ for all of us. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. The apostle argues with a rhetorical question. To which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? This is a preeminent point about this priest. You have a priest this morning. You have a priest by which you may confess your sins to God. He is sitting on a chair in the heavenly places at the right hand of God. The way the Bible describes that situation in heaven. Hebrews 1.3, Hebrews 1.13. Come over to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Seeing then, that's the bottom line of his argument from verses 12 and 13, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. The fact that the priest we're dealing with is in heaven, right with God, should motivate us to want to serve this priest, should motivate us to want to hold fast our profession. He's not a mere man here in this world like Eli who might forsake his own profession, which he did, by allowing his sons to abuse and corrupt the office of priest. We don't have a priest like that. We have a priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. And then in chapter 7 and verse 26, Hebrews 7:26. The apostle tells us, for such an high priest became us. I've read it already once. Here are the five characteristics. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. And what's that fifth one? Made higher than the heavens. Jesus Christ is as high as you can get. He's higher than the heavens. That's where this priest deals. This is a point that Paul wants us to be reminded of beyond the bottom line. This is the bottom line. We have such an high priest. That is the priest that's been described in chapters 1 through 7. However, I want you to pay particular attention to the fact that this priest is in heaven, not on the earth. There are millions of people today called premillennialists. They believe that at any time, some as recent as last, two weeks ago, Jesus Christ will return to planet earth. The temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem 
and it will have a rebuilt altar. And Jesus Christ will offer animal sacrifices again. The sacrifices of the Old Covenant will be instituted again. Now they'll say that they're not to picture Jesus Christ by looking forward, but they're to picture Christ by looking backward. <laughs> well, precious. They're going to shed the blood of animals again on an altar in Jerusalem. The premillennialists believe that. Paul is arguing a very strong point here. Jesus Christ's priesthood is in heaven, not on the earth. Let me jump ahead to verse 4. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest. What does that do to the premillennial idea of Jesus Christ being a priest on earth and offering sacrifices at an altar in Jerusalem? For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest. The priesthood of Jesus Christ is a heavenly function. Because if Jesus is on earth, he has no right to be a priest. Because on earth, as verse 4 will tell us if we read the rest of it, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. Any priesthood on earth has already been taken care of. And it's only one, brethren, and it's not Roman Catholic. There's only been one priesthood ordained for the earth, and that's the Levitical priesthood. That covers gifts and sacrifices on earth. Jesus Christ's ministry is in heaven. If he were on earth, he couldn't be a priest because he's from Judah, not from Levi. An important point. Paul's bringing us back to it. Paul's the one that says it's an important point. Therefore, any priesthood that exists on earth is what? Very inferior to the priesthood of Christ. And any priesthood that exists on earth that is not Levitical isn't even ordained of God. Because any priesthood that will be on earth will be Levitical. And he obviously he put that away, as we'll see before we get through the 8th chapter. It's gone. Point number one. We have such an high priest. He's a priest in heaven, not on earth. Now let's read verse 2. Jesus Christ, this great high priest, is also a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. The tabernacle that the Israelites worshipped in, and God helping me, I want to bring you a diagram of it so you can get it in your minds, was simply a tent. It was just a tent that was here on earth. What do you, how do you put up a tent? What's the English verb used to set a tent? Pitch a tent. And that's why the word, the verb pitch is used here, which the Lord pitched and not man. You know, the Israelites would move around, they'd set up their tent. It had stakes, it had walls, it had poles, and it was held up just like any Boy Scout tent. Didn't look like a Boy Scout tent instead of olive drab. It was uh, beautiful colors of linen. But it was a tent. The argument from verse 2 is this. Jesus Christ in his priesthood is a minister. And he does minister in a sanctuary and in a true tabernacle. Which means there is in heaven in some way a tabernacle or place to worship God. 
And there is within that tabernacle a sanctuary, a sanctified, what do you think sanctuary means? A sanctified place where Jesus Christ performs the role of a minister. Now, what did the minister do in the tent that was pitched in the Old Testament? I don't want to cheat by going to verse 3 yet, but it tells you in verse 3. What did a minister do in the old tent? Offered gifts and sacrifices. There are two arguments being made here. Number one, Jesus Christ is a priest in heaven, not on earth. Two, Jesus Christ is a true minister in a true tabernacle, in a true sanctuary. Therefore, Jesus Christ is offering gifts and sacrifices also. Because a minister has to have something to minister. A minister just doesn't walk in and stand before God without anything to do. He's got a ministerial function. Every corporation in America, the officers of that corporation have an officer title and they also have a functional designation, don't they? Ever heard of a president? Does that tell you what he does? Doesn't tell you anything about what he does. That is simply a title of office. He'll also have, after that name, President, a functional description. Chief Executive Officer. Usually below him, there'll be an Executive Vice President who will have the functional designation of Chief Administrative Officer. There is simply a title, and then there's the functional designation. Jesus Christ is priest. But what is his functional designation? Minister. He has something to minister in the tabernacle in heaven. Those two points are important to remember beyond the bottom line. Keep the bottom line in mind of everything we've learned so far, but remember Jesus Christ is a priest in heaven, and Jesus Christ is a true minister. He is performing a job in a holy place, offering gifts and sacrifices. Now let's go to verse 3. Verses 3 and 4 begin with the word for, which connects verses 3 and 4 with verses 1 and 2. It is an explanation. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. A true minister has something to offer God. Wherefore, if that's true, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. Why is it a necessity that Jesus Christ have gifts and sacrifices to offer? Because he's a minister. And every priest that was here on this earth had gifts and sacrifices to offer in their ministry. Because Jesus is a minister, he also must have gifts and sacrifices. Do you follow what Paul is saying here? That's all he says. I find this most intriguing. There is a five-letter word that has not appeared to this point in the book of Hebrews relative to Christ. It starts with B and it ends with D, and in chapters 9 and 10 it becomes of paramount importance. Blood. The five-letter word blood has not occurred yet in Hebrews. And Paul introduces it here in verse 3 without saying it, and without saying any more about it. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. 
He calls it somewhat. Paul does not want to jump into his argument about the blood of Christ. That comes in chapter 9. Wait till we get to it. Look at, look at chapter 9. Verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Hebrews 9, 12. But we're not, we haven't moved that far along Paul's argument yet. He simply introduces the fact Christ is a minister. Because he's a minister, he must have gifts and sacrifices to offer. And they're somewhat. They're something. But it doesn't tell us what it is yet. Remember, these are Hebrews. They put a lot of stock in the blood of bulls and goats. And he's building his case slowly over time. Now, if Jesus Christ is a priest in heaven, what kind of a bull or what kind of a goat do you think he's going to offer? Ones that wear wings? Angelic bulls? Every argument has its proper place. You know, the Bible says a word fitly spoken is like pictures of gold, is like apples of gold and pictures of silver over there in the book of Proverbs. A word fitly spoken. And Paul is just fitly saying everything here in this eighth chapter without introducing new concepts. Chapter nine will introduce the new concept of the blood of Christ. Jesus definitely has a gift that he offers to God. That's such an important point. Jesus Christ has never offered his gift to sinners. He's given his gift to sinners. He offers it to God. And that's his own blood. But we'll get to that in chapter 9. Now the next four is in verse 4. Four, if he were on earth. Now verse 3, four, dealt with the fact that Christ is a minister. Verse 4 deals with the fact that Christ is in heaven. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. So the first four verses have told us everything we've heard so far is true. We have an high priest that is like what has been described, that is, in fact, the very person that has been described. He is a priest in heaven. He is a true minister in a true tabernacle with a true altar in a true sanctuary where he offers gifts. But now verse 5. Who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things? That who there is referring to the priests that serve and offer according to the law. The Levitical priesthood, all those Levites, the sons of Aaron, they serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. What was their priesthood for? Was it to save men from their sins? C.I. Schofield thinks it was. Go home and pick up the original Schofield Reference Bible, page 1115, and you'll find C.I. Schofield in a note on John chapter 1 where it says grace and, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, breaking the Old Testament and New Testament into seven dispensations and telling us that under the Old Testament, Men were saved conditionally by obedience to the law. The Levitical priesthood did not put away sins, nor was it ever intended to put away sins. It was simply to give a picture of what Jesus Christ would do a thousand or two thousand years later. This verse tells us that. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things? There is a tabernacle in heaven. 
There is a sanctuary in heaven. There are cherubim in heaven. There is a mercy seat in heaven. There is a priest in heaven. And all the Levitical priesthood did was show a picture of that for Jews in a very obscure way. Listen, brethren, there is an ark in heaven. You say, prove it. Okay. Revelation chapter 11. I get goosebumps reading this passage in Re Revelation chapter 11. I want to begin at verse 15. Don't read ahead of me, please. When the Bible says the seventh angel sounded, what did he sound? A trumpet. If it was the seventh angel sounding, what trumpet was it? It was the seventh trump, otherwise the last trump. What happens at the last trump? Jesus Christ returns and there is the resurrection. Listen to this. Revelation 11:15 and the seventh angel sounded. And there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That agrees with 1 Corinthians 15 that tells that Jesus Christ will reign until he's delivered up the kingdom to God. Verse 16, And the four and twenty elders, representing the twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles of the New Testament, which sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. This is the last day. This is the day of resurrection. This is the day of the rewards for the saints. This is the, the, the day of destruction of all of God's enemies. This is the day of his wrath. You, you've seen that. Now look at the last verse. And the temple of God was opened in heaven. The holy of holies is revealed to all men. And there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. I am looking forward to that day. Listen, when God rent the temple veil in twain at the death of Jesus Christ and revealed a little box four feet long, two feet high, and two feet deep, that was impressive to Jews. This is going to impress this Gentile. This is the temple of God. And believe me, brethren, the ark of his testament, when you open this ark, you're not going to find the Ten Commandments. You're going to find the everlasting covenant. The ark of his testament. See, everything's in heaven. Moses went up into the mountain and God gave him a vision, the likes of which no one has ever seen. He saw heaven, and God said, make sure when you get back down there, you build everything just like you saw it. And God let him build a picture down here of what it's going to be like in heaven. The temple of God was opened in heaven. 
and we're going to be able to go right in by Jesus Christ. Back to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Those Levitical priests, their ark, their sanctuary, their tabernacle, was all simply an example and shadow of heavenly things. I wonder where the ark is. And forget Raiders of the Lost Ark. But where is the ark? The ark that was here in this world was rather unimportant. And after the destruction of Jerusalem, it became very unimportant. It's probably melted down someplace in Roman goblets. God hasn't worried about it. You don't need to worry about it. There's an ark I'm a whole lot more concerned about, and it's in heaven. And no amount of worry is going to help it stay there. God is able to keep it there, and that's the ark I want to see in the presence of God. Everything in the Old Testament was simply a picture of what it is like in heaven. The Old Testament had no reality of its own. The Old Testament had no reality of its own. Now, you'd have been hard-pressed to convince a Jew of that, but it was simply a picture of the real thing, of the true tabernacle. Now, they had a tabernacle. Why doesn't God call theirs a true one? Because it wasn't in reality. It was just a picture of the true tabernacle. And God told Moses, Make sure, see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. There is no reality in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a picture. That point is so important. In chapter 8 and verse 5, we have the word example. We have the word shadow, and we have the word pattern. Example, shadow, pattern. Now, when you look at a shadow of a thing, can you tell much about it? If we were to walk outside and the sun would shine today, and there was a shadow on the ground, could I look at that shadow and tell much about your facial features? I couldn't tell anything but a vague, obscure outline. That's what the Old Testament was. A vague, obscure outline of reality in the worship of God. There's three words. An example. It's not the real thing. It's an example. It's a shadow. It's a pattern. How many of you women would like to wear a pattern for a dress to church? That would be risque, wouldn't it? A pattern. A pattern isn't much. It's the reality that a pattern is showing in an abbreviated form. Catch my words, please. The Old Testament had no reality. It was just a little brief snapshot, a little brief outline, a shadow of the reality of God's worship. Look at, ver look at chapter 7 and verse 15. This is a verse that we studied last Sunday. And I want you to pick up another word because there are five chief words used in the book of Hebrews to describe the relationship of the old covenant to the new. Verse 15, It is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest. The Levitical priests were simply similitudes 
of the true priesthood. A similitude is not the real thing. Moses saw the similitude of God, but the Bible tells us plainly no man has ever seen God. But what did Moses see? A picture, a representation of God. He saw God's similitude. Then look at chapter 9 and verse 9. This is talking about the holiest of all in the tabernacle, the tent that was on earth. Verse 9, which was a figure for the time then present. A figure. When we read the Old Testament and we look at their priesthood, we look at their ceremonial laws, we look at their sacrifices, we look at their Ark of the Covenant, it is all figurative. It had no reality. And that's what we have introduced to us in verse 5. Now, do you think Paul would start off chapter 1 that way? Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles, chosen by God our Father and His Son Jesus Christ to all the Jews who've been worshiping only in shadows for 2,000 years. How would that have gone down? They wouldn't have read that. Paul, in, this is the most beautiful lesson in how to deal with people. Paul deals so subtly. He starts off with things they would agree with. I mean, the first word, God, instead of Paul. He starts most epistles with his own name. Here, God. And he's building his case. Now, when he gets to chapter 8, all of a sudden, all that Old Testament religion is just an example, just a shadow, just a pattern, just a similitude, just a figure. You won't find those words, brethren, in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. You find one in chapter 7, you find three in chapter 8, and the fifth one is in chapter 9, because Paul is getting into the meteor things. There is our high priest described in verses 1 through 5 of Hebrews chapter 8. The Levitical priesthood was simply a picture of him. Now Paul takes up a weighty argument in verse 6, and this takes us to the second section of this eighth chapter. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry. The Old Testament ministry was simply an example and shadow and pattern. That's in, chap that's in verse 5. The Levites were examples, they were shadows, and they were patterns of the true. But in distinction to shadows and examples, we have Christ. But now hath he, that is Jesus Christ, obtained a more excellent ministry. Jesus Christ is a far superior priest to the Levites. You say to yourself, I knew that by the time we got through with chapter 7. Paul is going to introduce a weighty argument. Jesus Christ is a better high priest than any Old Testament high priest. And here's the reason in verse 6. By how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. How much is Jesus Christ better, a better priest? How much is he a better priest? 
by the comparison of the old covenant to the new covenant, which is a better covenant that has better promises. Now, you didn't drop that on Jews in chapter 1. You waited carefully to chapter 8 and verse 6 to tell them you've got a better covenant than what God made with their fathers. Do you know what it'd be like swallowing that one? But Abraham, Abraham did have it all. We'll get to that in a minute. But Moses, the covenant made with Israel when they came out of Egypt, wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. It was simply an example. And there's a better covenant now that has better promises. You mean better promises than giving us these few thousand square miles of desert sand by the Mediterranean Sea? <laughs> I hope so. You mean better promises than giving us the priesthood of the Levites? You mean those priests that die about every 30 years? Yes. I hope there's a better covenant with better promises than that. You mean heaven and immortal glory as opposed to a piece of land in this world? Yes, better promises and a better covenant. By how much is Jesus Christ a better priest? Paul has argued it from every standpoint you can imagine. Try to figure out another one that he hasn't covered in chapters 5 or 7 or 8 down through verse 5. Now in verse 6, he's going to expand on the changing priesthood of Christ, which is a change from the Levitical priesthood by showing Christ ministers a new covenant. Now at this point, we're going to leave chapter 8 and we've got to study the covenants. Or we're in trouble. This evening, we're going to come back and finish Hebrews chapter 8. Right now, we need to study the covenants of God with His people for you to understand what those covenants mean. First of all, what is a covenant? A covenant is a, an agreement, a mutual compact between parties whereby both parties stipulate and re-stipulate and agree to do certain things for one another. Now, that is a definition of a covenant. And you'll find the word covenant used that way in the Word of God. However, the word covenant in Scripture also means the particular arrangement or promise that God has made at any point in time. For instance, God made a covenant with Noah that he would never again flood the earth with a flood. Now, what did Moses, what did Noah re-stipulate or agree to do in that covenant? Nothing. God simply said, I will do this or that. And it's a covenant. Because God has covenanted together to do it. He gave a token of that covenant, the rainbow. Noah agreed to the covenant by accepting it. Not that he had to. Because <laughs> the covenant was still going to stand whether he accepted it or not. That can be a covenant. Then sometimes we have that word in the Bible used, testament. Now a testament in the sense that we often think of it in today because we don't use it much anymore, is a last will and testament. A testament is a will. It's what a person designates to be done with his possessions upon his death. And in chapter 9, that is the meaning and the sense that the word testament will take. But as we go from Genesis to Revelation, we find the words covenant and testament used as synonyms. Look at Exodus 24 and verse 8. I want to prove that point. Let's not get confused. We see the word testament or the word covenant. 
The word testament is also an agreement or an arrangement. Exodus chapter 24 and verse 8, And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Moses sprinkles blood on the covenant that God had made with them, the written covenant. Now come over to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. Now the word covenant was used in Exodus 24. Here we have the word testament, verse 16, for where a testament is. Verse 17, for a testament is of force. Verse 18, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people. Notice verse 18 tells us that what Moses sprinkled was called the testament. The Old Testament told us it was the covenant. Covenant and testament are synonyms. They mean the same thing. However, the sense of the word testament in Hebrews 9 is going to be a will, which is not a mutual agreement. It is simply the promise or the granting or the bestowal of one of his possessions to be executed upon his death. God's covenants are primarily promises or arrangements that God makes with men. Sometimes they're conditional. Most of the time they're unconditional, depending on which covenant we look at. Now, Jesus Christ is a great high priest. He has a more excellent ministry because he is the minister of a better covenant that has better promises. Therefore, we better understand God's covenants. First of all, men are saved by covenant. Eternal life, heaven, living with Jesus when you die, however you want to think about it, is by covenant. We believe in covenant salvation. And when I say that, I do not mean that in the Presbyterian scheme of things. The Presbyterians do also. When the Presbyterian talks about covenant salvation, they mean if you'll sprinkle your baby when it's born, God will save it because he has agreed to abide by a covenant. And you put that covenant into force by baptizing your babies. That is not the covenant I'm talking about. I am talking about a covenant or an agreement, an arrangement that God made with himself where the three persons in the Godhead agreed among themselves to perform certain operations in the salvation of God's elect. And the beneficiaries of that covenant are the elect. He never asked the elect to perform certain functions. God agreed to perform those functions. And it is by that covenant that we are saved. That is the lesson of salvation in the book of Hebrews. Now let's prove that everlasting covenant. And that's what we're going to call it, the everlasting covenant, because it is the covenant that has never been changed and has existed from the very beginning, from eternity. 
and it will exist to the very end, eternity, which has no end. It is the covenant that will be honored and glorified in heaven. Men have always been saved by the everlasting covenant, and outside the everlasting covenant there is no salvation. Look at 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23, this is a concept I never heard in the 20 years of religion that I had before I heard the truth. And that is that there was an eternal compact made between the persons of the Godhead that resulted in my salvation. Why, it is a written document. What is it called? Where is the written document and what is it called that has my name in it as a beneficiary of this covenant? The Lamb's Book of Life and it has my name written in it as a beneficiary. That's a glorious thought. What a glorious thought. You know how I used to look at the Lamb's Book of Life? Have I done enough to get God to bend over and write my name in that book? Every time I'd hear Revelation chapter 20 and verse 15 preached, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. I used That's a description of Jesus Christ. David goes on to say in verse 5, Although my house be not so with God. See, David knew this wasn't talking about him. It was talking about a great-grandson of his named Jesus Christ. Although my house be not so with God, Yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things, and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not to grow. What a text! If you're ever called to preach someplace, take Second Samuel 23, 5. If you can't preach for a while from that text, You've got problems. Second Samuel 23 and verse 5. He, that is God, hath made with me an everlasting covenant. How did he make it with David? He made him a beneficiary of it. That's called, I've made a will for my children. I've made a will with my children. We could say that very easily. That doesn't mean that they're involved in it because you, by the mere pleasure of your will, decided what you would give them upon your death. God made an everlasting covenant with David. Ordered in all things. Guess what? All the terms of the covenant have been ordered by God. And sure, how many of them do you think will fail? How many of them do you stand in doubt regarding? They're sure. Everything God has specified and ordered in this covenant is sure. And David said, this is all my salvation. I'm not looking for the instrumentality of the gospel. I'm not looking for gospel means. I'm not trying to figure out where faith and good works fit in. He simply said, and most of you, brethren, don't appreciate what I'm saying. There are whole books of theology written on the covenants of God trying to figure out how to fit man into the everlasting covenant. I ought to bring some of them and show you some of the most learned men that have ever lived <laughs> in man's estimation of learning, like Dr. John Owen, who was the chaplain for Oliver Cromwell. You should see him 
trying to argue both sides of whether faith is a condition of the everlasting covenant or not. He knows he's in trouble, so he argues both sides. It is and it isn't. David said, this is all my salvation, and he's not talking about hearing the gospel preached by Paul. He's talking about something that God made with him in an everlasting covenant. It's ordered, it's sure. This is all my salvation, all my desire. It has everything I want in it. All spiritual blessings are in it, although he make it not to grow. Doesn't include everyone. It's limited. It's not universal. It's specific. It's not general. It's particular. Although he make it not to grow. I can't do anything with it to increase it or to reduce it. It doesn't change. That's the everlasting covenant. Come back to Hebrews 13, 20. Let's get the second witness on this name. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. Oh, what a glorious salvation to be saved by covenant. God made a will and made me the beneficiary. We can understand that, can't we? Fathers do that here in this world. They do it according to the mere pleasure of their own will. They might cut one son out, make one son get everything else. That's up to them. They can choose to give the automobile to one son and give the hunting rifles to another. It's according to their own will. God did the same in salvation. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. When Jesus Christ shed his blood for his sheep, it was a term, it was an operation ordered by the everlasting covenant. When Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep, John chapter 10, and when he said, I don't lay my life down for you Pharisees in John chapter 10. If you can read, that's what it says. He said, I lay down my life for the sheep and my father, which giveth them me is greater than all. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. God gave to Jesus Christ in the everlasting covenant his sheep. God in the everlasting covenant ordered Jesus Christ to die for those sheep and shed his blood. And we are the sheep of Christ and redeemed sheep through the terms of that everlasting covenant. Let's think just briefly about the terms of the covenant. God the Father, what was his role in the covenant? He chose those that Christ would redeem through his blood. He chose the sheep. He elected them. According to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, God chose us in Christ to obtain all spiritual blessings. Now do you understand why David would say, this is all my salvation and all my desire? Because it contained all spiritual blessings. What else did God the Father do? God the Father also made a body for Jesus Christ. We're going to read that in Hebrews chapter 10. What else did God the Father do? 
God the Father has been preparing a place for us since the foundation of the world. A term of most wills includes the transfer of the house, right? The family home. God did the same thing. He's been building a house since the foundation of the world. Look at Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Verse 34. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's not a bad text either, if you'll notice all the words in it. Come, ye blessed of my father. All spiritual blessings are in Christ, and we obtain them through election. The role of God the Father in the everlasting covenant was election. And that election was to all spiritual blessings, and one of those blessings is inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Notice who it is prepared for. Mankind, angel kind, or you. And if you will read this passage, you'll find out that those on his right hand are God's elect, the sheep very separate from the goats on his left hand, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God the Father, from the foundation of the world, has been preparing a kingdom, a place, which is heaven, our eternal inheritance. It's called that. You know, you inherit the Father's house. We're going to inherit a kingdom. That's the Father's role in this covenant. Now Jesus Christ came to do the will of His Father. John chapter 6, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. The covenant's been ordered in all things. What's the order to the Son? Die. Be humiliated in the world, dwell among men for 33 years, and die. And Jesus Christ came and died. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Oh, some of these verses are so good. 1 Peter chapter 1. This ought to be more valuable to you than gold and sweeter than honey Amen. to hear of covenant salvation. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. Speaking of Jesus Christ, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Now, when something is ordered, it can also be said to be ordained. Who verily, that is Christ verily of a truth, was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Jesus Christ was ordered to die before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1.20 We read over there in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 that everything that happened to Jesus Christ in the cross, whether it was the crown of thorns, the nails in His hands, the casting of lots for His garment, or the piercing of His side, and the fact that not a single bone was broken, all of that was according to the determinant counsel of Almighty God. When did that counsel determine that those things would be done? Known unto God are all His works from the foundation of the world. It is the everlasting covenant that ordered everything that would take place relative to Jesus Christ. We believe in covenant salvation. If you're ever discussing salvation with an unbeliever, which is the rest of the city of Greenville, 
explain to them that we believe in covenant salvation. And that isn't sprinkling of water. That sprinkling of blood that was ordered from the foundation of the world and that has no terms of man in it. Faith is the fruit and effect and result of that covenant. We obtain faith through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We don't obtain the righteousness of Jesus Christ through faith. They have it reversed. Faith is a fruit of the covenant. When God sends His Spirit into our hearts, which is Operation 3, we then bear the fruit of faith. What is Operation 3? Operation 3 is that the Holy Spirit applies it in regeneration. You say it sounds like the five phases of salvation. You hear well. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Verse 5. You, you're familiar with these words, but oh, it's good to hear them again. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. If it had not been for Jesus Christ dying, what would the Holy Spirit apply? How would the Holy Spirit regenerate you if it were not for the blood of Christ? The three operations of God are so close together. God the Father elects, Jesus Christ dies, and the Holy Spirit sanctifies or makes you holy. Once those three operations are done, we are fit for heaven, except for the glorification of our bodies, which is the final operation performed by them all jointly. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Here's your covenant salvation, and here are the stipulations of it. 1 Peter 1, 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. There's God the Father's operation. Through sanctification of the Spirit. That's when the Holy Spirit of God makes us holy. Regeneration. Sanctification in a vital sense. Unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Grace is multiplied in that verse. Election by the Father obedience by the Son, sanctification by the Spirit, all wrapped up in one. That's how grace comes to you, and there is no place for you in that covenant. I could take you to Romans chapter 8, where the terms of the covenant are expressed in foreknowledge, predestination, justification, calling, and glorification. And Paul immediately says upon the heel of those five functions, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? If God purposed to save a group of people and ordained it, ordered it in a covenant, who shall say anything against it? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is by covenant. And it's called the everlasting covenant. You say, is everyone saved that way? Is everyone saved that way? Look at Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, God sits on His throne and holds a scroll, a book, that has seven seals on it, 
which includes, is related to the covenant of God, and there's only one man that can open the seals of that book. John's witnessing this situation before Christ appears in the scene, for this is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he grieves that there is no man to open it. Look at verse 3. And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And then he's told, don't worry, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the offspring of David, has won the victory and he will open the book. And he appears in the presence of God as a lamb slain. And he takes the book in verse 7, out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he does that, the elders fall down before the throne and before the Lamb, and they sing a song in verse 9. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. And this is the everlasting covenant, for this covenant is dependent upon the blood of the Lamb before it can be taken from the hand of God. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And brethren, that includes tongues and peoples and nations of the Old Testament, of the New Testament, of 6,000 years ago, of 4,000 years ago, whenever. It was all done the same way when Jesus Christ entered into the holy place in heaven and took the book of the covenant out of the hands of God. A covenant that said, I have chosen. A covenant that said, Christ will die for. A covenant that said, the Holy Spirit will sanctify. And we shall glorify these individuals. That's our salvation. A covenant salvation. Look at John chapter 14 and verse 6. John 14 and verse 6. How many ways of salvation does Peter Ruckman teach? Anyone here know? Seven. Seven ways to get to heaven. Seven dispensations is a very popular theme of chopping up the Bible. Now, we believe in chopping. I don't like the word chopping. We believe in dividing carefully, rightly dividing. They hack it up into seven dispensations, usually with seven different means of salvation. Seven different relationships to God relative to salvation. What did Jesus Christ say, John 14, 6? Jesus saith unto him, that is to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. At the last day, Almighty God will say, Come. Do you remember that from Matthew 25, 34? At the last day, the Father will say, Come. Now, how will you get there? By the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth, the life. There's only one, and it's Jesus Christ. The apostles taught in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. 
The only salvation is in Christ. Look at 1 John 5.11, or listen to 1 John 5.11. This is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. You say, well, how do you get the Son? You're made accepted in the Son. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6. You're chosen in the Son. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. You're created in the Son. Ephesians 2.10 and 4.24 in regeneration. Salvation is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And the book of life is the document. Now God will open books of works at the last day. Look at Revelation chapter 20. Indeed, God will open some books of works. What will be the purpose of the books of works? Will it be to show the basis for six other ways of salvation? Or will it be to show that everyone's condemned? Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12. Oh, I used to hate this passage. I love the Word of God, but I didn't want to look at this passage. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books, plural, were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and thanks be to God for that book. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. When we finally stand before the great throne of God's judgment, God will not be saying, Okay, some of you are saved by the book of life. Stand over here, please. Some of you were saved by keeping Moses' law. Could you please step over here? You're not quite at the same level as these saved by the book of life, but you made it. <laughs> Be thankful. Stand over here. Those of you who believe the promises given to Abraham, you're not quite as well off as those who believe the law of Moses. You stand here. And we have seven different groups of people there. There's one group, and they were all redeemed by the blood of Christ because it is the book of life of the Lamb slain. It's all by blood. And all the blood that was shed in this world never had one ounce of reality to it. It was only a picture. And only if the Jews could have seen that. But why didn't they see it? He hath blinded their eyes so that He might send it to you, Gentiles. And I don't mean the blood. The blood would already have been sent to you by eternal ordination. What was sent to you? The gospel message of that blood. And it was taken from them. God left them in their ignorant superstition. And it was superstition to think that the blood of a goat washes away human sins. You say, how can you use the word superstition relative to the Old Testament? Well, Paul said, who hath bewitched you? That superstition, that ye should not believe the truth. 
Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1. I have taught you seven proofs of unconditional salvation. All seven proofs are just as valid in Genesis as they are in Romans, as far as the time frame of God's dealings with men. Look at Acts 15. Acts 15. What do you, do you think the elders and the apostles at Jerusalem knew what I'm preaching this morning? I mean, they were the apostles. Do you think they knew? They provide the foundation for the gospel church along with Jesus Christ. <coughs> Acts 15. Here's Peter's concept of how Gentiles are saved. Acts 15 and verse 10. Now remember, don't read ahead of me. In Acts 15, Peter, Paul, and the other elders and James are dealing with some Judaizers. Some Pharisees came down from Jerusalem teaching you had to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. They're dealing with that issue. Two ways of salvation, or let's say another way. You have to keep the law of Moses to be saved. How does Peter react to that? Since he was the one to first preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Acts 15.10 Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? <laughs> if salvation's by the law, guess how many make it? None. Peter says, we nor our fathers were able to bear it. Ver I love verse 11. But we believe. Do you believe this this morning? This church believes this. We believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Jews, Gentiles, Old Testament, New Testament, it's all by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter understood that. And he sets it forth very plainly there. Notice verse 9. God put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. God manifested the fact that these were righteous men by their faith and obedience to the gospel. But the salvation came through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, the law, the old covenant, had neither saved Jew nor Gentile because no one could bear it. You want to go back and read the old covenant and see if you can bear it for 70 years' existence in this world? Romans chapter 3. We're almost through of what I'm going to be able to cover this morning. Romans chapter 3. We haven't even got to the patriarchal covenants, the old covenant, or the new covenant. What are all these other covenants if there's an everlasting covenant that stretches from eternity to eternity? What is the new covenant? What is the old covenant? What are the patriarchal covenants? Noah, Abraham, Adam. Romans chapter 3. Here's salvation. We need to start at verse 19. Now we know, and this will tie in with what we'll cover this evening. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, there's the old covenant, it saith to them who are under the law, that every man that will believe it and do it shall obtain the righteousness. that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty 
before God. So important. Why did God give the law? To shut mouths. So that when you stand before Him, He can flip in His books and make you look like the most wicked person ever walked this earth and shut your mouth. And all the world may become guilty before God. Do you want to live under a covenant that's purpose is to make you guilty? Or do you want to live under a covenant that's purpose is to make you righteous? What a difference. Verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. What's the purpose of the law or the old covenant? The knowledge of sin. It's to teach you you're a sinner. Verse 21, but, there's one of those buts in Scripture that contrasts two important elements, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith in Jesus Christ. Is anyone here reading from the Living Bible or the New King James Bible that where it says faith in Christ? What does your Bibles say? Of Christ. Is there any difference between faith in Christ and faith of Christ? One's your faith and one's his faith. Do you think there's much difference there? Brethren, if heaven's dependent upon my faith, I'm not going to make it. My faith is simply too weak. But the faith of Christ is not. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference whether they're Jews or Gentiles. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no other way to achieve the glory of God because we're all sinners. We've come short. We don't measure up by any other standard. Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's what Peter was talking about. But by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ comes free justification. Verse 25, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood. Who is acting in the first half of verse 25? Who set forth? Christ. God set forth Christ. What else does God do? He has faith in the blood of Christ to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. We'll come back to this passage this evening. You want to know how people were saved under the Old Testament? First of all, by the forbearance of God that waited until Jesus Christ died. And then Jesus Christ was made a propitiation for sins past that were held up through the forbearance of God and sin's future, Gentiles, preeminently. It is by the righteousness of God, by faith of Jesus Christ, and through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, all men are saved the same way. There are basically three dispensations in the Bible. You say... You're teaching dispensationalism. I guess I am. But can I prove this one with the Bible? Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 13. For until the law, 
Sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Those two verses describe the first dispensation in the Bible. And it tells you when it begins, and it tells you when it ends. When does it begin? Adam. When does it end? From Adam to Moses is the patriarchal period when God deals with individual men. Tonight we'll look at the patriarchal period. Then from Moses to Christ, we well know that's a dispensation. That's called the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Law. We'll look and see how men were saved then and what purpose the law of God had. I've already hinted at it rather strongly. And then from Jesus Christ until the end, when he comes back for us, is the new covenant. Three dispensations of different dealings with men. The patriarchal period where God dealt with fathers, individual men. The old covenant where God dealt through Moses and his law. The new covenant where God deals through Jesus Christ openly and visibly. And those are the three dispensations. Tonight, we'll look at them more closely. But it is the everlasting covenant that we want to look at and focus upon. And the Lord willing, next Sunday, observe the Lord's Supper again and hopefully see more clearly and think more definitely upon the, the words of the Savior when He said, this blood or this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Tonight I'll explain why the words new, the words old, are applied to the word covenant and how they relate to the everlasting covenant. But the great covenant for which we have to be thankful is the everlasting covenant through the blood and by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in covenant salvation. May God be blessed with this preaching.